You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. Well, actually, we'll be at the end of chapter 2 here in just a second. But Habakkuk chapter 3, as we finish out our series uh, on the book, this little book called Habakkuk. And today we're going to wrestle with the question, what do I do, what do you do when the wheels come off? When it hits the fan, when trusting God doesn't seem to work, when evil seems to prosper, the the good guys suffer, the bad guys seem to win. I I don't know about you, but I ask that question almost every Saturday when Tennessee loses and Alabama wins. I I ask that question myself, like, God, how long are you going to let the bad guys keep on on prospering here? Um, That may just be me, but... um, But when it comes to more serious topics, when it comes to kind of our lives where the rubber meets the road, when things go bad, when when Christianity doesn't seem to work kind of the way we expect it to work or the way we think it should work, what do we do? Uh, I remember this is about 10 years ago now, uh, I was pastoring in Louisville, Kentucky, and there was a a young family that, was, that had become part of our church. Uh, we had led the wife to faith in Christ. I baptized her, uh, and she was married. Uh, her name was Katie, and she was married. They had one child, so they joined with our church. And then they had another child, and we, we dedicated that, that, you know, those parents and those children and, uh, to the Lord. And then she was pregnant with their third baby. And one Sunday morning, just like this, at 4.45 in the morning, I got a text from my associate pastor that Katie had had a brain aneurysm, and was on life support at the, at the hospital, and they weren't sure if she was going to make it and weren't sure about the baby. And so I, when I got done with the morning's services and stuff, I, I, I drove immediately that afternoon to downtown Louisville to the hospital. And I walked in, and all of Katie's family and, and her in-laws were all in the waiting room, uh, kind of trying to wait and see what the doctors would say. And when I walked into the waiting room and, and her mother-in-law saw me, she looked at me and she screamed at me. And she said, there is no God if this is happening. And tears falling down her face. And I mean, what do you say? Um, I didn't know what to say. I just, just hugged her and I'm just so sorry this is happening. And man, the, that night was one of those times I went home I mean, I know all this stuff. I studied all this stuff, but just went home that night and just grabbed my wife and grabbed my children and just, and just cried. Um, Katie ended up passing, and, and, and she delivered, they delivered the baby because of the trauma. The baby lived about an hour uh, and then passed, and I, I was there with, um, with the husband there in the room. I held the baby uh, after she had passed, and, and then a couple days later did a funeral with this mom laying in the casket and her, her little baby on her chest and just think, what in the world am I going to say? What happens when a, another time in ministry, there was a, a guy that I was, a young married guy I was mentoring, and um, one of the struggles that he was having was he and his wife had been married a couple years and were, were trying to have children and for whatever reason couldn't have children, and they were praying and asking God to to bless them with children. And, and so one uh, morning I met him at six o'clock in the morning at McDonald's and again, was trying to just walk through accountability and, and mentor him. And he came in very upset and I said, I said, Brian, what's going on? And he said, he said, yesterday at work, a guy came into work cussing because he had accidentally got his girlfriend pregnant. 
And we're, we're, we've been begging God to give us a child and he doesn't even want one and he, he's going to be a father and, and we want children desperately and, and for whatever reason, God hasn't given us children. And so what do you do when life isn't what you expect, when you don't know where God is, when, you, when you've prayed and you've asked for things and you, you didn't get what you wanted? How, how long am I going to have to wait, God, for you to answer this? I don't know what your situation in the room is. It could, it could be, man, I, I want to find a wife and I just can't find a wife. I want to find a husband. I just can't find a husband. Or maybe I, I do have a husband and we've got all kinds of challenges and we've got all kinds of problems. Or I, I do have a wife and we have all kinds of challenges. And we, have, we do have children and our children are a wreck and they get on our nerves and we don't know exactly what to do with them. And, and it's our, our life's just a challenge and put on that financial stress and, and job issues and, and just whatever it is. You, there's these times in our life where we're like, God, what are you doing here? Because I can't see it. I don't understand it at all. What are you doing? As one pastor said, unanswered prayer is tough, but sometimes answered prayer is even tougher. Sometimes God does show up. Sometimes God does answer, but he doesn't answer in the way we wanted. And he doesn't answer in the way that we expected. And so we're like, well, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, I, I, I asked for this specifically, and, and you didn't give me what I was asking for. And, and what you did give me, I have no idea what to do with it. I don't understand this. This is what's happened with this man, Habakkuk, this, this prophet of God, Habakkuk, is he's been praying, he's been burdened about something, he's been praying to God for it, and God answered his prayer, and he's like, I don't like the answer that you gave me. It's chapter one, Habakkuk starts with this prayer, God, when are you going to do something about the injustice in Judah? All this wickedness, all of this flaunting of your word, all of this injustice, all the poor who are being mistreated, there's all this pain in Judah, when are you going to do something about it? And God answers and says, I'm about to, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians and they're going to completely wipe out Judah. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in there. He's going to burn Solomon's temple to the ground. He's going to take all of those vessels that you've used to worship me all these years. He's going to take them off as his treasure to Babylon. He's going to take the people off out of their homeland and take them as exiles to Babylon. That's what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk's reply is, are you kidding me? The Babylonians, they're worse than we are. They're more wicked than we are. How can you as a holy God who can't even look at evil use such a wicked people to accomplish your purpose? This doesn't make any sense to me. And so Habakkuk waits and says, God, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait for your answer. And God's response is, I know exactly what the Babylonians are like. And after I've used them for my purpose in Judah, I'm gonna turn my judgment on them and I'm gonna pour out my wrath on them. But in the meantime, Habakkuk, trust me. Trust me, in the between time, I want you to trust in me. And that brings us here to Habakkuk 3, which is Habakkuk's final prayer to God. And it's actually a song that's meant to be set to music and sung in corporate worship. And what we see here at the end of this book, this little book is a model for us from the life of Habakkuk about what to do when the wheels come off, what to do when life doesn't go the way that we expect we get a model here in Habakkuk's life of how we can be moved to permanent joy despite the circumstances. Even when the circumstances don't line up the way that we want them to, we can still have permanent joy. And that's what we see here in the conclusion to the book of Habakkuk. So let's read this together. We're going to start in chapter 2 and verse 18. We're going to read through the end of the book. Okay, start in chapter 2, verse 18, and we're going to read through the end of the book. This is what 
God's word says. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed one. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. May God bless the reading of his word. What do you do when the wheels come off. There's four things we see in the life of Habakkuk. Number one, pray honestly. First thing that you should do when the wheels come off is you should pray honestly. This entire book uh, gives us the prayer life of Habakkuk, and it teaches us, I think, at least three things about prayer, that our prayers should be persistent, that our prayers should be more than me focused, and that our prayers should be honest. Our prayers should be persistent. Part of the challenge that we have as believers is that often we don't pray as we should. And when we do pray, oftentimes it's kind of a one-off. We'll pray for a short period of time, maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, but we will not wrestle with God in prayer over a long, persistent period of time. It's one of the things that we see with Habakkuk. In chapter 1, when he says, how long, O Lord, until you do something? How long, O Lord, until you show up? This shows us that that was not the first time that Habakkuk had prayed to God about these things. 
It's not the first time that he had said something to God. He had been involved in a long period of prayer, and he's finally gotten to that exasperated point where he's saying, God, when are you going to do something? He had persisted in prayer before God. Also, it's more than a me-focused prayer. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for things for ourselves. We should, and, and Jesus even models that for us in the Lord's Prayer but we should be more than me focused. Oftentimes we, we only want to focus on God bless me, God do this for me, God help me. But that's not the prayer that Habakkuk is praying. Habakkuk is praying, Lord, look at your world, look at your city, look at your country, look at your people. They're, they're sinning, they're rebelling against you. There are people who are being hurt, there are people who are being taken advantage of. There's all kinds of wickedness going on. There's all kinds of pain in these people's lives. God, please show up and do something. This is a, a prayer like the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, thy kingdom come. That's what he's praying. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done here as it's done in heaven. And so he's focused on the world. This is a prayer that's focused on the world. And do we have those kinds of prayers? God, look at the pain in the world. Look at the injustice. Look at the wickedness. Look at the suffering. God, when will you show up and do something? God, how can you use me to address the pain and the suffering in the world? And then we see here that it's an honest prayer. When we do pray, oftentimes I fear, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I, I don't feel like we are as honest and transparent with God as we should be. Often we don't trust the goodness of God enough to, to be honest with him in our prayers. We think that we have to say what he wants us to say, what he wants to hear. Think we have to try to manipulate him to get some kind of answer that if, if we go in this kind of dishonest, but you know, overly pious posture that all of a sudden he's gonna be more inclined to respond to us. And Habakkuk doesn't do that. He's not, he's not filling his prayers with all these just flowery words. He's just saying, God, I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm, I'm hurting and, and, and we're hurting and, and please help me to understand what's going on. We need to be honest with God. Habakkuk knows not only that God is sovereign, but he knows that God is good and gracious and that he will permit Habakkuk to speak to him in this way. And so he knows the goodness of God and he knows that God will hear him. And so in our prayers, we need to be humble, but be honest. Don't dress up your prayers. You're talking to your father. Be honest with him. God, help me to see this. Help me to understand what you're doing. I'm struggling. I want to see it, but I don't. So we need to be honest in our prayers. And the prayer that he utters to God here, to a God who, who hears him and answers him, is in direct contrast to what we read at the end of chapter 2 about the, the false gods that the Babylonians were worshiping. These false gods that the Babylonians were creating, these idols that the author tells us they can't speak. They can't respond when you tell them to respond. They can't show up and help you when you're asking for help. This is foolishness. The, the true God, the real God, he's in his temple. He's in heaven. So, so be quiet and let him respond to your prayers and let him answer you. But these false gods, they can't do anything for you. One of the earliest Christian documents that was written talks about the, the foolishness of idolatry. And it's this author's writing to these people who are struggling with idolatry. And he's, he says, basically, like, you know how foolish idolatry is? You make the gods that you worship out of porcelain. You know what else we make out of porcelain? Toilets. 
And that's about how good your idols are. You're, you're creating them with your own hands and with your own imagination. And so they can't do anything for you. They can't respond. They're dead. They're lifeless. The problem is, while none of us in this room probably have little figurines in our house that we worship, just like the Babylonians, we want a God that we can control. We want a God that we can manipulate. We want a God who does what we want him to do, who does what we think is best for him to do. But listen, friends, let's be honest with ourselves, okay? We can't, in our own power, in our own wisdom, change our own circumstances. And we can't, in our own power, in our own wisdom, make ourselves happy. So what makes us think that a God who just is our errand boy doing everything that we tell him to do is going to be able to do that? That's not the way it works. We don't get to tell the, those of us who are fools, tell the all wise one the way that his world should work. And those of us who are powerless, tell the all powerful one, this is what you need to do in this situation. Listen, a Stepford God who only does what we want him to do cannot save us. He will not help us. Because it's our own lack of wisdom and our own lack of power that's gotten us into the mess in the first place. And so we serve a God who cannot be manipulated, who cannot be domesticated, who will not be boxed in. And that's the best news in the world because he is actually more powerful than our circumstances and our own little desires that we have. And he can do what is actually best for us, not just what we think is best for us. There's a real God in heaven, not some idol that's, that can't speak. So we close our mouth and we listen to him and we wait for him to respond. This is amazing that we see here, as Paul says later in Romans, who are you, the clay, to question the potter? And yet, throughout the Bible, the potter is gracious enough to lend his ear to the clay and to listen. And you know what? To show up and respond when we do pray. And so we have a real God that we need to honestly pray to. And that's what Habakkuk does here. God, we've wrestled through this in the first two chapters. And so he says, now do what you're going to do. Just do it. I, I tremble at this revelation of what you're going to do, but do it. And then he says there in chapter three, verse two, that the end of that verse, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. You're going to pour out your wrath, but Lord, please also be gracious. And this is pointing us forward to, to something that even Habakkuk was waiting for and, and didn't get to see all the fullness of. Habakkuk is talking to the one. He's talking to the one who will take the wrath that sinners deserve on himself by becoming a human being, living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we should have died at the cross. This is the one who will become a human and will take divine judgment on himself at the cross. And let me ask you a question. How does he do it? Answer, through a godless, wicked, pagan nation named the Romans. So back all a flutter. God, how can you use the wicked Babylonians to judge your people? And God says, I got even something better coming down the line. I'm going to use wicked Jews and wicked Romans to pour out my wrath on my son so that the world could be redeemed through him. And so in wrath, 
God remembers mercy. And that meets perfectly at the cross of Jesus Christ. God has dealt with sin, finally and decisively. And God also is offering his mercy to sinners, and he does it through the death and the resurrection of his son. So the first thing we see here is this honest prayer to the Lord, but I'm going to trust you, and, and I'm going I'm to trust that you're going to be merciful even in this situation. Second thing we see from Habakkuk is worship God for what he has done. Worship God for what he has done. Best thing to do, one of the best things that you can do when the wheels come off is to reflect on how God has saved you. Reflect on how God has saved you and let that cause you to worship and praise him. So one of the best things you can do is focus on the gospel, that, that God came in human flesh, died for you, was raised from the dead to give you forgiveness and to give you eternal life. Reflect on that. Habakkuk does this. He, he writes a song that reflects on the, the ways that God has saved Israel in the past, okay? It reflects on the gospel, okay? He writes this song, and it's meant to be sung in corporate worship so that not only are we singing this for ourselves, but we're reminding one another as we sing about the ways that God has worked for us in the past. And this is something we need to be reminded of constantly. We come in here and we sing these songs that, that reflect on the, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We do that. We, we sing these things in corporate worship, reflecting on the past saving acts of God to remind us, to remind each other with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, God has saved us and God will be faithful to deliver us in the future. And we need to be reminded of that constantly. You can be confident that one day God will rescue you from all the troubles you are facing right now because he saved you in the past, because his son died for you and was raised from the dead. And so he writes this song that reflects on how God has saved them in the past. Specifically, he's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and how he defeated the Canaanites uh, in the conquest and, and gave them that homeland there in the promised land. He's reflecting on Psalm 77. He's reflecting on Moses' song in Deuteronomy 33. And he's doing this to give the people confidence that in the same way God saved them in the past, he is going to save them again in the future. And here's the good news. Those of us who are followers of God after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have an even better vantage point to do this than Habakkuk did. Habakkuk's looking back at the Exodus and that's great, but we get to look back at the cross where salvation was fully and finally dealt with, where we were given full reconciliation with God. And so we should sing these songs. We should be reminded over and over again, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If he's for us, who can be against us? We need to be singing these kinds of songs and reminding each other of this over and over again. We sing these songs, right, to comfort us in difficult present circumstances. When sorrows like sea billows roll, when, when, when the sorrows are just washing over me like waves, but still I can sing, it is well with my soul because of what Christ has done for me. And that's exactly what we see here with Habakkuk. He's reflecting on the ways that God has saved in the past. I'm not gonna go through all of the imagery. Just note a few of these. He, he talks there in verse three about Timon and Mount Paran. That was the, the region where Mount Sinai was. And Sinai is where 
through the burning bush. He commissioned Moses to go back and to rescue his people from slavery. And it's where he met with his people after they had been rescued from slavery. He talks about the plagues that were used to rescue them from the Pharaoh. He talks about light and, and, and splendor, the way he led them through the wilderness with that pillar of fire. He talks about a thunderstorm, this awesome thunderstorm that shakes the mountains that happened there at Mount Sinai. He talks about the fear that the surrounding nations had when they heard about what Israel's God had done. He talks about uh, the splitting of the Red Sea and the splitting of the Jordan River, that this is how he rescued his people and how he judged his enemies, right? If you remember the Exodus, he opens up the waters of the Red Sea. Israel crosses through on dry ground. Pharaoh and his army try to come after them, and then God drops the water on top of them, and he defeats the enemies of Israel, but he's rescued them safely to, through to the other side. Jordan River parts it, walk across on dry ground, then they go in and defeat the people at Jericho. And so God, over and over again, is using water, just like the flood, right? He's using water to judge those who have rebelled against him, but he's also mercifully rescuing his people through that flood. And then he mentions the battle in Joshua 10 where, the, where God causes the sun to stand still so that day is prolonged so that Joshua can defeat his enemies. And so he's, he's referencing God has over and over again in the past shown up and judged your enemies and poured out his mercy on you and rescued you. And then verses 12 and following, he reflects on the promise of God, the very first promise that God made back in Genesis chapter three. I don't know if you remember this. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, when they ate the fruit they were not supposed to eat, and then uh, you know, Satan had tempted them to do that, and then death enters into human existence, and sin enters into human existence, and there's this curse on the world that comes. In that moment, God goes to Adam and Eve, and he says, listen, it's not gonna always be like this. There will come a day when the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, he's gonna have his heel bruised in the process. He's gonna experience suffering in the process, but he's gonna crush the, say, the serpent's head. And so Habakkuk reflects on how that promise, it's an ultimate promise coming with Christ, but all along the way, in little ways, God has been keeping that promise. And he says there in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. All along, these satanic rulers that had come against Israel, God puts them down and he rescues his people. And God puts them down and he rescues his people. And he says, I'm doing this because I'm preserving the line of the anointed one. I'm preserving the line of the Messiah so that one day he will show up and he will fully and finally crush the dragon's head and overturn death and put down the curse that has come into human existence. And so we have this, this reflection, God, you have, you have continually saved us and delivered us, and you will ultimately save us and deliver us. When the Babylonians come in and take them out of the land in exile, that exile from God, that separation from God will not end until God shows up once again in an earthquake. Once again in the sun going dark at midday, when Jesus breathes his last breath and the curtain tears in the temple so that now we have full access to God. And so God says, I'm going to show up in glory, in power, and I will judge and I will rescue. And Habakkuk's saying, you can trust that God is gonna do that. You can worship God despite the faith-threatening nature of your circumstances because he has saved you in the past and he will certainly save you in the future. 
past salvation not only comforts you in your present struggles, but it strengthens your faith in future salvation. And that's the third thing that we turn to here. Next thing we do when the wheels come off, trust that he will eventually set things right. Trust that he will eventually set things right. Look what Habakkuk says there in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He says, I'm gonna wait, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime. I'm gonna trust that you're gonna make good on your promise. I'm gonna trust that you're gonna set things right. That it's not always going to be like this. I'm gonna trust that. And so Habakkuk, in his distress about what's happening around him, says, no, I'm gonna patiently wait for you, Lord, to do what you have said you're gonna do. I'm gonna wait for you to accomplish your plan. He's doing exactly what uh, chapter two and verse four had said, that the, the righteous shall live by faith. He says, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna believe in you. I'm gonna believe that you're gonna set things right. And here's what's important here about what Habakkuk's doing. Because again, the fulfillment of this, he's not even gonna see it in his lifetime. And so trust is, even if you don't show up immediately, I know that you're going to show up ultimately. That's what real faith is. Even if you don't show up immediately, I know that you're going to show up ultimately. And get this, ultimate deliverance is better than immediate deliverance. Ultimate deliverance is better than immediate deliverance. Listen to me. Being healed of cancer so that you can live 20 or 30 or 40 more years and die of natural causes is great. It's not as good as 40 million years in the presence of Jesus. It's not even close. And so, yes, God does. We, we have these situations in our life and say, God, please help. Please get me out of this. Please rescue. Please heal. Please provide. And there are times when he does, and it's great. But guess what? We get sick again, and we need provision again, and things get hard again. But there's coming a day when all our tears will be wiped away. And that day, Paul says, listen, I, the, the sufferings of this present life are, are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. There is coming a day that's going to be far, far better. And so following Christ, Christianity, doesn't necessarily mean your best life now. It does mean your best life later, and it does mean your best life forever. And that's good news. This is Mark Devers, a pastor in Washington, D.C., said, if you're a Christian you can be assured that within a few years or decades, every worry you have right now will have been proven unfounded, either because Christ returned or because God resolved them for you. And if you're not a Christian, I just wanna plead with you, that's the kind of God worth serving. That's the kind of God worth following. That's the kind of God worth worshiping. You will outlast every trouble you ever face. Do you believe that? Every bit of cancer, every bit of relational strife, every bit of stress over your children, every bit of financial burden, you will outlast every single one of those troubles. Do you trust that? You need to trust. Eventually, he's going to set things right. Eventually, he's going to make good on his promises. Number four, finally, let God be your strength rather than your circumstances. Let God be your strength rather than your 
circumstances. Look what he says here in verses 17 and 18, and let me just explain what's, what's going on behind this. He's drawing on imagery here that other places in the Old Testament, if you read where God says, I'm going to bless my people in Deuteronomy, for example, these other places, when God says, I'm going to bless my people, these are the kinds of things that he says. Your land's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Crops are going to be good. Children are going to be great. Your flocks are going to be good. All, all these, this list is every form of physical blessing that God had promised to his people. And Habakkuk says, they're all gone. Every single one of them. He says, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He says, listen, though every form of physical blessing may be gone, yet I will rejoice. Can we say that? My 401k, even if it bottoms out. My children, even if they disappoint me. My marriage, even if it has strife. My health, even though it's failing. My bank account, even though there's nothing in it. Yet I'm gonna rejoice in the God of my salvation. Despite, this is amazing, right? The circumstances have not changed. Despite the circumstance is not changing. Habakkuk says, the Lord is my strength and I'm walking on air. He says, I'm walking in the mountains. How did he get there? This vision that he had of the saving Lord who's gonna show up and who's gonna do what he said he's gonna do, it produces faith and it helps him to have strength even in the current climate that's not changing. So what a change we've seen in Habakkuk's life, right? He goes from chapter one telling God, trying to tell God what to do and rushing God along, when are you going to do something to now all of a sudden I'm going to wait on you and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to just lean into you and let you be my strength, right? He, he begins by telling God how to run his world and he ends saying, God, you know best how to run this world and I'm going to trust that. He's been changed. He's grown in maturity and often that's what God's trying to do with us in these seasons that don't feel good at the time. It's not, it's not like a back saying, man, I love this. I enjoy it. But he's grown, he's matured, and, and it's often what God does for us. You know, the, the truth is, prayer is a mystery. And when we pray, when we as feeble sinners pray to Almighty God and ask him for things, he does it. And that we can change the heart of God. I don't know how it all works, but through prayer, we can change the heart of God. And that, that happens. And we see evidence of that all throughout the Bible and all throughout our own experience. But in the same breath, prayer is often not so much about you changing God as it is about God changing you through that period of prayer. He has been changed by, by God so that now he can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh might fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that? Jesus, you are my strength. Even if I have nothing left, even if every physical blessing that I desire is gone, I, you are enough. See, this is a question we need to ask ourselves. Are we disciples? Are we followers of Christ simply because our life circumstances have been nice? Or are we followers of Christ because as 
the disciples said, when everybody, when all the other crowds left and Jesus says, you're gonna leave me too? And the disciples said, where will we go? You're the one who has the words of life. Where, where else are we gonna go? So are you a disciple because life has just been nice and, and you feel like God's given that to you? Or are you ready to take up your cross as Jesus commanded and to walk with him and to trust? Even if my circumstances let me down, you're never gonna let me down. He didn't get the answer he wanted. His circumstances didn't change, but he says, I'm gonna lean on the Lord and I know that he's gonna be with me through it all. Sovereign Lord of the universe who who shows up in the thunderstorm, he's also gonna be right here with me, giving me strength in my daily walk. Alistair Begg talks about this, how the rubber meets the road. This is is real life. And this, this is what Alistair Begg says. Some have bought a lie that Christianity is about I go to God with my problems and now I have no problems. Life is just one big picnic. Beg says, that's not true. The picnic comes eventually, that's heaven. But right now, all hell lets loose against us. Cancer, kids that drive us crazy. So how do you get from that to I will rejoice? The answer is not in some wooden thing that can't help you. It's in the sovereign Lord. It's through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. And it's grace that's brought me safe this far and grace that's going to lead me home. Beg says, tell your friends that. Tell your coworkers, when it hits the fan, the answer is not in the changing of your circumstances, but in the revelation of the sovereign Lord who can be your strength in tough times and who is greater than your circumstances. And so if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, let me just ask you the question, where are you going to go when the wheels come off? Where are you going to go? Are you just going to say, well, there is no God and and just suffering and evil is just part of life and it's random and there's just really no way to explain it. We just got to treat each other a little bit better. I say, well, there, there is a God, but he's just not good enough to want to do anything or powerful enough to be able to do anything about it. And so it's just, it's just kind of random. There's no answer to it. Or would you rather run to a God who didn't just step back and say, hey, you know what? If you want to clean up this mess, you do it yourself. But said, no, I'm going to become one of you, get down in the mess with you and take on all of the suffering and sin and injustice of this world on myself. That's a God who is worth trusting. Every other God, whatever fake religion there is in the world, every other God, every other idol says, you clean up your life and then I'll bless you. And the real God says, no, 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 I'm gonna get down in the mess with you and I'm gonna suffer with you and for you. And ultimately one day I'm gonna wipe away every tear. And if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, what are you gonna do when the wheels come off? What are you gonna depend on? Circumstances? Or again, the God who got into these messy circumstances with you and promises one day to do away with it. There's only one God in all of history who says, you don't have to clean up yourself before you come to me. I'm gonna get down in the mess with you. I'm gonna suffer with you. I'm gonna gonna hurt right alongside you. you. If you've lost a child, guess what? God has lost a child too and he knows what that's like. If you've faced death, guess what? He's faced death too, and he knows what that's like. If you've suffered injustice, guess what? He suffered the greatest injustice in the history of the world. There's a poem that was written after World War I by a guy named Edward Shillito. It was a 
World War I was a very bloody war. Uh, so many people died. It was, it was, again, unlike anything the world had ever seen to that point. And Edward Shilato was a believer, and he was trying to meditate on this and come to grips with this and try to find some encouragement. And so he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. And I want to read this to you as we, as we close. So he says at the end of World War I, if we have never sought, we seek you now. Your eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pick pricks on your brow. We must have you, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is your balm? Lord Jesus, by your scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, you draw near, only reveal those hands, that side of yours. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to your throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And there is not a God who has wounds except for you alone. We ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to go into a time of response. Just want to challenge you this morning. If you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, I want to challenge you today to call out to this God, the one true living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into human existence, took all of the suffering and evil of this world on himself in order to do away with it. I want you to call out to him for mercy. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're suffering, no matter what problems you have going on, you can call out to him and he will give you mercy. Say, be merciful to me, a sinner, and he will save you and, and change you and make you new. You want to talk to somebody about that? I want, you, I want to encourage you to go to our care and prayer room. And there are people there who would love to just explain to you how Jesus loves you and how he wants to change your life. And those of you in this room who are hurting, maybe need somebody to pray with you or somebody to talk with you. You're a believer, but you know all these things. But man, sometimes it's just hard to, because of the circumstances of life, to, to really hold on to them and to really let them be good news to you. And so I want to encourage you, go and talk to somebody. and Let them try to be a source of encouragement in your life. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, just thanking you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. So much more, way beyond what we ever deserved. We thank you that you didn't leave us and remain distant to the problem of evil and suffering, that you became part of it and you took it on yourself. And you promised one day, I'm gonna make all things new. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe every tear away from your eye. Be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Father, we recognize we're in a lot of that right now, but we trust because there was a cross and there's an empty grave and there's a promise that you will return in glory and power to set things right. We know that you can be taken at your word. And so help us in our unbelief, help us to believe. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.